Last week we looked at those first 11 verses, and today Ecclesiastes 3, 12 to 15. Uh, but I'll begin in verse 11, which says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. And nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Your word is truth. As you said, Lord Jesus, we ask God that you speak this truth to us so that we cannot mistake it and that it would correct the lies that we believe, uh, that it would correct our thinking, renew our mind, and transform us into the image of your Son as we hear it and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week, as we ended on verse 11, where Solomon says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into our hearts. Uh, Because we've been created in God's image, and even though uh, we are sinful and that image has been marred, we still instinctively recognize beauty when we see it. And the more sin gets into the picture, the less... We can do that, but we recognize beauty when we see it because God is the author of that. And also, because of this, when we do so, when we recognize the beauty, whether it's of creation or of anything else uh, in this life, uh, we need to acknowledge God as the creator. We need to acknowledge God as the one who works all things together for our good and so on. We need to give him glory uh, as we recognize his beauty. Well, God's also put that yearning for eternity in our hearts. Uh, the, the knowledge that there is more to life than just this life, this short life that we have on earth. And yet the, the yearning for eternity and the, and the realization of, of these things, we realize there's limits to our knowledge and our understanding of God's ways. Because at the end of verse 11, you know, he says, God's put eternity in our hearts, except no one can really uh, understand, find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Uh, It reminds me of what Isaiah said in chapter uh, 55, verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, God's, uh, the fullness of God's ways are beyond us. So we certainly ought to meditate on things like time and eternity, right? Uh, but, but we can't fully comprehend them. They're, they're, these, you try to do that, and you will realize how deep these things are. But, but instinctively, we know that, that there's some practical importance. We can grasp these things. 
And that's exactly what God does for us. He he reveals them uh, to us in his word. Uh, and the Hebrew word for eternity is olam. It, it, it encompasses the whole of what God has done, is doing, and will do, which, of course, uh, is why it's translated as eternity. So we, we apprehend bits and pieces of God's eternal counsel uh, and, and an understanding of the works that he does, uh, but we can't fully comprehend them all. We can't take it all in. Only the mind of God can do that. And what does uh, the Bible say about that? Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Um, well, Solomon picks up now in verse 12 uh, to give some of those practical considerations. You, do you like practical things, right? Things that tell you how how to do things. Uh, well, the Bible gives us uh, a lot of practical uh, wisdom, especially in the wisdom books like Ecclesiastes. But the focus in verses 12 to 15 falls under two headings. First, God's good gifts to man. And then second, God's amazing works. And under these two headings, uh, there also are responses that, that we are required to make. And really, every piece of Scripture, every portion of the Word of God, every sermon that you hear requires a response. You do know that, right? You're not passive in just hearing a sermon. God expects you to hear what you uh, hear and believe it. Take it into your heart and put it into practice in your life. And so in light of God's gifts to us, we're to rejoice and do good. In light of God's works, we are to learn to fear the Lord. So let's look at that first point, uh, God's good gifts to man. Solomon says in verse 12, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. So to rejoice and do good. These things go together. Uh, in God's design for mankind. And, and you know, Solomon's already taught us from his own experience that, uh, that, that there is no meaning and purpose ultimately to be found in a life that's lived for self, a life that's lived for pleasure or uh, for money or even wisdom. Uh, these things in and of themselves does not uh, yield meaning and purpose in life. And, but that doesn't mean... That doesn't mean that in the things of this world that God has made, uh, that there is no uh, joy or enjoyment. There, there are. The Bible says he's given us all things richly to enjoy, uh, and yet not as an end in and of themselves. But there is much rejoicing uh, for those who are in a right relationship with God, who seek first the kingdom of God. And as Jesus said, then all these things will be added to you. And But how can we be happy, really, and rejoice in a world that is full of suffering, it's full of death and grief and loss, and sometimes apparent chaos and great evil? How can we rejoice when all this is going on? Because uh, from the first 11 verses of chapter 3, we, we learn that God is the sovereign ruler over all the events of time and eternity. To everything there is a season, a fixed time, a purpose under heaven. God's got it all under control. You can rejoice. You can relax. You can rest in the Lord and rejoice in Him. Well, 
In our culture, we're accustomed to thinking that we can control our lives. We, I think a lot of the things that we do in life are to try to control uh, everything. We control the uh, climate in our homes, in our churches, until the power goes out. Uh, we control the, the, the channels on our television set until the signal goes out. We think we can control uh, our finances until the stock market falls out. Well, we're not in control of our lives. Uh, control is an illusion. No, no one knows what a day will bring forth. And, and you plan out your day, but the Lord directs your steps. The Lord in his providence has a plan for your life. And uh, it's not necessarily always what we plan. So the, the, the times and seasons of our lives are in God's hands. And that's the best place for them to be. And we will only be happy and rejoice when we learn to submit our lives into his loving, wise hands and under his control. If I know that God is sovereign and he is in control, then uh, that sets me free. I don't have to worry about everything that goes wrong in my own life or everything that's wrong in the world, which is what I tend to do. Uh, so uh, if I know God through Jesus Christ, I can focus on rejoicing in the Lord and giving thanks for all his blessings. And some of those modest blessings... Again, we, we, we often take the blessings of God for granted. We take all the little things for granted, but those are the things that God gives us every single day of our lives. I was thinking about it last night, uh, just not because I was having any trouble, because I was thinking of others who do struggle. Just the gift of being able to breathe. Right? What a blessing. And, uh, and, and so we, we can take many, many things for granted, but let's don't do that. Let's give thanks and praise uh, to God. For all things, but verse 13, that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is the gift of God. Just eating and drinking. Did you eat and drink anything this week? Uh, probably you did because you wouldn't be here, uh, most likely, if you didn't eat or drink this week. But we heard something similar earlier in chapter 2, verse 24, where he said there's nothing better for a person than you should eat or drink and uh, find enjoyment in his toil. And he said, this is from the hand of God. And you'll hear that repeated again in the rest of the book as we go through it. But God has given us work to do in this world. That's important. Work is a blessing. It's under the curse, but it's still a blessing. It enables us to provide for ourselves and our families. And that provision is a gift of God. And so God, uh, through work, gives us blessings. He gives us blessings apart from our work. And he gives us many of these things, earthly blessings, every day of our lives. Now, we can choose to focus on the things we want but don't have. Or we can give thanks and enjoy what God gives us. We can covet what others have and what we don't have. Or uh, we can enjoy and praise God for what he has already given us. So which... One will it be? One is going to make you happy, and one will make you miserable. So let me ask you a question. Are you happy right now, or are you unhappy? If you're unhappy, why are you unhappy? Uh, we, we tend to be unhappy because we put our happiness in our circumstances, our situation. And, uh, and yet, um, that's not where happiness lies. Really, uh, happiness comes from our choices and our attitudes. We can actually, because we're in Christ, because we know the Lord, we can choose uh, to be happy. 
by taking our focus off of the things uh, around us and fixing our eyes on Christ. That's why Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That has... That statement right there is not impacted by anything in the external world. It's just impacted by rejoicing in Christ, by knowing him. That's why the author of Hebrews said that we should fix our eyes on Jesus. And that word fix means, first of all, you turn your eyes away from other things and you fix them on something else, in this case, Jesus. So it's a choice to turn your eyes away from those things, those problems, those hardships, those pains, and turn them and fix them on Jesus. We, we sing that, right, in the hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. How hard is that, though, sometimes? We look, look in his face, and then immediately we look back to those troubles. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we need to learn to gaze upon the beauty of our Lord. And when we look away from those things uh, and look into Christ's face, joy will come. And we we rejoice in the the good things that he gives us, the the ordinary things of life. It's the gift of God, said Solomon. Charles Bridges in his commentary said, Endeavor to enjoy him in everything. Enjoy God in everything and everything in him. Can Can we do that? Enjoy God, but also enjoy the things he gives us, but enjoy them as unto him and in him. So the key to joy is found, first of all, in recognizing God's gifts and giving thanks for them, for all the blessings. But as verse 12 tells us, goes on to tell us that joy often and also comes as a byproduct of doing good. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. So he not only gives us good gifts, but he enables us to do good, to imitate him. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so if you and I become givers, become uh, those who serve and do good for, to others, we become like the Lord. And our happiness actually increases uh, not only when we take things from God's hand and give thanks, but when we give them away, when we use them for his service. And First uh, Timothy 6, 17, and 18, we find these instructions that Paul said, command those who are rich in this present age, and I would say really all of us are rich, we have more than we need, command those who are rich in this present age to do good, that they would be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. It's so basic, right? Uh, and, and these works involve the sharing of ourselves, not just resources, includes that, uh, sharing of our time, our labor, of our very selves. That's what Paul said. Paul said, we gave to you, Thessalonians, the gospel, not only the gospel, but our very lives as well. And that's what we're called to do. So then, are you doing good? Are you doing good? And the only way to do good is, is to do what God has commanded. Uh, we don't have to think it up. God tells us what's good in his word. And doing that in the best interests of others, for the sake of others. You know, the best way to spoil the blessings God gives us is to hoard them and not give away the things that he gives to us. So, the best way to make uh, uh, the blessings a source of even greater joy is, is to hold them loosely and use them 
as God gives us opportunity to do good for brothers and sisters in Christ first, to our neighbors who may or may not know the Lord, and then even to our enemies as Christ commanded us. Remember what uh, was recorded of the Lord. These words are found in Acts 20, verse 35. It says that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you know what the word blessed means? It means true happiness. True happiness. If, If you want to be truly happy, then... It's more blessed. You'll be more happy if you give um, and not just receive. So giving and doing, doing good is the path to great joy as we imitate the example of our Lord who gave himself for us. Think of the good that came from the cross and then offer your own body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And secondly, from this passage, we we look at God's wonderful work. So, So he gives us gifts. To enjoy, and he gives us the gift of doing good to others, which increases our joy. And now he's describing what God does. Uh, he tells us that God does his work so that men should fear before him. So we move from rejoicing to fearing God, rejoicing in God to fearing God. And some people have thought that these two things are mutually exclusive and they don't go together. Uh, But that's not true, because the Bible tells us, it teaches us, for example, in Psalm 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It can be done. It is what we're called to do. And more about that in a minute, more about the fear of the Lord. But what does Solomon say about God's works in these verses? And the first is to note the obvious in verse 14. It it just says that he's always working. He says that we know that whatever God does, and then he says God does it, and so on. That God's doing. He's always doing. He's he's very active in his working. And so, uh, uh, you know, this this is what we see. We see he is very active. He didn't just create the world and remove himself from it. He's still working. First Chronicles 16 verse 12. Uh, says we should remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. And the question is, what happens if we forget? What happens if we forget the marvelous works that God has done? Well, uh, we don't have to wonder because Psalm 28 and verse 5 tells us this, because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands, he shall destroy them and not build them up. We know he's referring to to Israel and their their, uh, often repeated history of forgetting God, things that he had done for him, and that led them to worship false gods and and to abandon the worship of the one who had established them as his people. And so uh, they lost the fear of the one true God. And uh, and yet God is the one who did all the great things uh, for them that they should have remembered and had forgotten. But we need to follow what Psalm 111 verse 2 tells us, that the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. So we need to study the works of God so that we don't forget them. And, and, and the thing we learn from Solomon here as we study the works of the Lord, first of all, is that God's work, everything he does is permanent. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. And so, remember that everything God does, uh, He, from eternity, has decreed or planned to do it. 
There's no spur of the moment with God. It's all eternal plan and purpose. And so God's works, they last forever. By contrast, Solomon's already told us that, that man's works are soon forgotten. Someone else may inherit what you do and it may, may all go to waste. And uh, by contrast, God's works last forever. And Ecclesiastes stresses the vanity of our own works that are, that are done apart you know, without reference to God and so on. And the permanent nature of God's works. And again, we, we think of the, the eternal counsel of God. Psalm 33:11 says, "The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations." God has a purpose, He has a plan, and He fulfills that plan, and it all comes to pass exactly as He wishes. And uh, there, there's a permanency there. There's an eternal eternality to all He does. He never changes His plan or purpose. He doesn't have to, and, and, and He won't. And his plans will always be accomplished, especially as we think of this great work of salvation, this great work of redemption. All right, from eternity, the Bible tells us, I'm not reading this out of some other book, the Bible tells us that God has predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's predestined certain angels, certain human beings, uh, and, and you know, that is his choice. That is his work, his plan, his purpose. Uh, and uh, all I can say is thanks be to God uh, that, that he's included me and you in that plan of his. Is it possible that God might have predestined someone for salvation that later they might not make it to heaven? No, that's impossible. Uh, because God's works are forever, are permanent. If, if God gives someone eternal life, he doesn't take it away. Eternal life is forever. And, uh, and so they will make it to heaven. You will make it to heaven if you know the Lord Jesus. What God does, he does forever. Romans 8.30 gives us this unbreakable golden chain of salvation. It says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, so the, the eternal glorification of God's chosen ones in heaven is just as certain as his predestining of them and everything in between. And, and the guarantee that you and I are part of that group, that chosen group, is that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. We don't know the eternal mind of God, so we can't guess if he's predestined us or not. All we can do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you have believed on him, you are justified. And if you are justified, you'll be glorified. It's all good. It's all in the plan and purpose of God that does not change and it lasts forever. So it's going to happen. And, and, and uh, since it is God's work of redemption is eternal, it's forever, it's permanent, you don't have to worry or be anxious about it. Uh, you are secure in Christ. But secondly, not only is, is God's work permanent, it's also perfect. And, and those two are closely related, of course, but, but the Bible, Solomon said nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. So the work of our salvation, our redemption, was accomplished by God the Father, uh, or planned by God the Father. It's been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been applied to our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but Jesus is 
the Redeemer of God's elect. Uh, and, and the work, of course, that he did to, to save his elect was accomplished on the cross, his death and his resurrection. And the Bible says he is a rock. His work is perfect. We talk about the perfect finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. When, when Jesus died on the cross, what was the last statement he made as he, as he died? He said, it is finished. It's completed. It's perfect. The salvation of my people is done and it can't be added to or taken away from. Fully paid for by my substitutionary atoning death. You know, there's not one cent left of your sins that needs to be paid for by you. It's all been paid. Every single one has been paid for. The debt has been fully paid. You'll never have to pay it. Never. If your faith is in the Lord. Jesus paid it all. Now, all to him I owe because of that. Out of love and gratitude, I want to serve him. I want to follow him in my life. But you can't add to the finished work of Jesus Christ who died and rose again. Uh, and the very idea that we would add our works uh, to his work is a slap in the face of the perfect redeemer and his perfect work. The Bible says it is by grace you have been saved. That's a gift. Grace you have been saved through faith. Not that not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. If I paid one cent of, of, of my trillion dollar debt, I could boast in, in that one cent, but, but I, I can't even pay that. Um, and it would be a slap in the face if I were to try. Now, all cults, of course, and all false religions, no matter if they go by the name Christian and church, doesn't matter. If, if they teach uh, that you must add something to the work of Christ uh, that he has done for us, uh, then, then they have gone off the rails. And they left the plantation, the reservation, whatever you want to say. But you, you can't add to perfection. And Solomon says nothing. And, and, and so that we know that. We, we don't add it to our works. Uh, add our works to salvation, we can't. Uh, but he also says nothing can be taken from it. And I had to think about that for a minute. Uh, our works don't add to our salvation, but neither do our sins take away from it. Okay. Uh, some Christians fear that, that if they sin after they're saved, that somehow they forfeited salvation and they've got to do something to get it back. Um, but 1 John 2, 1 says this. It says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Okay, if anybody has a question about when I get saved, what am I supposed to do? Don't sin. All right. John says, I'm writing these things so you don't sin. But he says, and if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what if I do sin? Have I lost it all? No. I still have an advocate in heaven who continues to plead his blood and righteousness on my behalf. And so uh, rest. Our part is simply to keep repenting of sin and keep resting in that perfect finished work. Uh, you can't add to it because your works are only filthy rags. And even your sin, uh, even after you're saved, your sin cannot take anything away from it. Uh, it, it. He is going to finish that work in you that he began. Uh, and not only did he finish it on the cross, but he's finishing it in you and me. Uh, rest in the Lord. Uh, he came to give you rest. You remember what he said. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. Uh, and he came to give peace of conscience and confidence in the face of 
of anything in the face of death and the face of final judgment. What, what more do you, do you and I need? In John 10, 28, he says, All, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Never means never. Never. Uh, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. But, but not only are we to trust and rest in his finished work, verse 14 reminds us that God does it, that men should fear before him. Fear before him. If someone claims to be trusting in the Lord, but that doesn't lead uh, for salvation, and that doesn't lead to a fear of the Lord, then something's wrong. Uh, the fear of the Lord is that holy, reverential fear and awe that we have before him as the Almighty is the sovereign Lord of all things. It's, the fear of the Lord is that holy uh, filial fear of, uh, that, that we respect, uh, our, like we respect an earthly father. We respect our heavenly father who's given us life and who, 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 is, who is our father. And, and it is that thankful fear, that loving fear that we have for him, that we love him so much that we don't want to do anything that would dishonor him or offend him. And, Psalm 111, verse 10, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We, we hear that all throughout the Old Testament. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. So here's the idea. The fear of the Lord is this great respect for Him that leads us to keep His commandments, or at least to try. Uh, because trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy. In Jesus. Well, verse 15, he closes out this section with kind of an enigmatic verse that can be difficult to interpret. Uh, it's even difficult for me to read the emphasis of, the, of these phrases, but uh, that which is has already been. Okay, think about that. And what is to be has already been. Okay? Uh, and God requires an, an account of what is past. Well, the first thing we, we say about that verse is it reminds us of what he said earlier in chapter 1, verse 9, that that which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. So uh, the idea, I think, is that God is governing the world like he's always done so from the beginning. The seasons come, the seasons go, the sun rises, the sun sets, moons wax and wane, stars stay in their courses, and so on. There's a steady constancy about God's way that he keeps the world running. And, and though there is much change in people and in nations, uh, that change is nothing new either. There's not, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. People uh, always act in, in certain ways, and God responds in certain ways. So uh, even your trials, even your temptations that you're facing, those are not anything new Either these things have been experienced by others in the past. And what's important to remember as he concludes is, is that God requires an account of what is past. Now, that's, he's not talking about that we'll stand uh, on the day of judgment and give an account to God here. Uh, another translation puts it this way, that God repeats what is past. Uh, so don't expect that God's going to deal with you any differently or that life is going to be any different for you than it was for others in the past, it's it's not. Uh, he's going to repeat these things until until he brings them all to an end. And so the laws of nature and the events of life are, are are going to be very similar to us as they were for those who've gone before us. And that's that's actually an encouragement because it, it reminds me of First Corinthians ten thirteen. It says that God uh, that no temptation or trial, same word, 
has overtaken you except what is common to man. Common to man today, common to man in history. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, so you and I are going through the same trials, the same temptations that Abraham, Moses, prophets, all those saints in the Old Testament, the disciples in the New Testament. We're going through the same kinds of things that Christians, believers, have always gone through, walking the same paths, and we also have the same grace of God in Jesus Christ. They were looking ahead in the Old Covenant to the Lord Jesus. We are looking back. We have an even greater revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same grace is available to us, will enable us to persevere and to overcome, because God is the same in every age. He is faithful in every generation. Well, what do we take away from this as we conclude? Well, first of all, you can't change the circumstances that you, you're in. Sometimes you can, but mostly we have to change our attitude toward those things. We, we need to repent of murmuring and complaining uh, and instead quietly trust in God, uh, rejoice in the Lord, and, and, and worship Him in, in holy fear and reverence in our trials, knowing that, that He's sovereign. And, and when we look back, you see, one day we'll look back on our trials uh, in the clear light of eternity. And what, what will we see? We'll see them in a different light. We'll see them as we ought to see them. As Psalm 25.10 says, that all the paths of the Lord are mercy and in truth. And that all that God has done has been good. And, 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 and we'll understand it then. Not now so much, but we need to, to trust where we do not understand so these are uh, God's gifts and God's works for us to think about and meditate on. Again, the greatest gift and the greatest work was the work of salvation. And we're going to observe now the Lord's Supper. And we'll ask the elders to come forward as we enter into the time of receiving communion.